0: Well, good morning. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn them to Hebrews chapter 4, we're starting in verse 14 this morning as we continue our series as a church called The Supremacy of Jesus, a a study in Hebrews. If you are still learning where Hebrews is in your Bible and you brought it with you this morning, think about going almost all the way to the back, not quite to the back and you will uh, find Hebrews. If you didn't bring a Bible, we encourage you every week to grab one of the black Bibles in the seat in front of you there that we provide and you can find Hebrews 4 on page Page 840. And I'd love if you followed along... Uh, with us this morning. As you're turning there, I I, want to tell you about a story I read this week about a man by the name of Ken Mansfield, and his story is kind of appropriate uh, for this series we're doing right now. Ken Mansfield was the uh, head of the U.S. Apple Records that represented the Beatles when they were in the United States, and he wrote a book called The Beatles, The Bible, and Bodega Bay. And in this book, Ken Mansfield talks all about these amazing opportunities he had to hang out With the Beatles. I mean, can you imagine how cool that was? I mean, he talks about all the adventures uh, that he had with them. However, uh, a few years after the band broke up, Ken Mansfield hit the bottom. And it was when he hit the bottom, as so is often the case, he met Jesus. And this book he writes is all about how meeting Jesus was even greater than hanging out with the Fab Four, as they're known. Even greater than the Beatles is knowing Jesus. And isn't that really what we've been discovering in this series together in Hebrews, friends? If you're following on your notes, we've been saying this every week. But let me remind you if Jesus is supreme, and we have been learning he certainly is, then he deserves our whole life. He's better than the Beatles. He's better than the Beatles. Now, just to remind you if you've been with us or to catch you up if you haven't been a part of this series, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing immense threat and persecution and ridicule because of their faith in Christ. And what was happening is that some of them were considering abandoning their faith in Christ and going back to their old way of life. And this author of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, but this whole book is about encouraging him to say, don't do that. Why would you want to do that? I mean, we've already seen in the first four weeks of this series, right? Jesus is supreme over the angels. Jesus is supreme over Moses and the law. And then last week, if you were here, Jeff did an amazing job showing us how Jesus is supreme over Joshua and the promise of rest in the promised He's even greater than the Beatles, as Ken Mansfield discovered. And so if that's the case, why would we ever want to abandon that? Jesus is supreme, and this letter is all about encouraging us still today as his disciples to continue in the faith, to hold firm to what we believe. In fact, the very first verse of the section we're going to be looking at this morning, Hebrews 4.14, pretty much sums up the entire Argument of this letter so far. Would you read it out loud with me there on your notes? It says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. This letter, again, if you're on your notes, is all about this question. It's all about this question How do I, how do we make sure we hold firm to the faith we profess? How do we make sure we hold firm to the faith we profess? If you haven't learned it yet, I love how Jenny talked about this. Living the Christian life is going to be a battle, isn't it? Have you learned that? That's why we say we're declaring war on shallow Christianity, beginning with ourselves, because I know, at least in my own life experience, my natural drift is not towards holding firm. It's towards walking away. It's towards becoming shallow it's towards you know this whole idea of not persevering in my faith it's a constant temptation I'm a constantly being faced day after day with struggles and battles and this letter is all about what do we do when those challenges come how do we make sure we hold firm to the faith that we profess if we are Christians and this morning we're going to see in this section if you're following that one of the answers is we hold firm by looking to Jesus as our great high priest as our great high priest. In fact, I'll just tell you right now, starting in chapter 4, verse 14, going all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, we come to the heart of this letter of Hebrews, and this is all going to be about showing these Jewish Christians how Jesus is supreme over the old covenant priestly system of sacrifices that they were tempted to go back to. Now we might hear that and go, well, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with us today. We don't talk a whole lot about sacrifices or priests unless maybe you grew up uh, in a background uh, with priests. So what does this have to do with us today? But as you probably do know, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, there's quite a lot written about this whole thing, isn't there? In fact, I know I have conversations with many of you. There's a lot of confusion in this whole aspect of the priestly system and and the sacrifices. I can't tell you how many of you I've talked to, and you've decided, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And you get to that book we all dread. It's the third book in the Bible. What's it called? Leviticus. Leviticus. And we read Leviticus, and we're like, what is with all the blood? What is with all the priests? What is with all the sacrifices? And I love when I'm talking to some of you, I always say, you know, Leviticus is one of my favorite books. And you're like, what? Because this is where Leviticus really pays off, friends. Understanding Leviticus will help us understand Hebrews in a much greater capacity. In fact, I want to give you some homework this week. And don't moan. I want you not to read the whole book of Leviticus, but write this down. Read Leviticus 8... 9, 10, and 11. Or, and 16, I'm sorry. 8, 9, 10, and especially 16. Especially 16. And I promise all you Leviticus strugglers out there, I promise you, you're going to get a lot more out of this series, uh, especially these next five weeks. Uh, it's going to come alive as we study Hebrews together. And the other reason we have to understand all this is because unless we understand the role of Jesus as our high priest, we will miss the very foundation of our faith. I can promise you this whole idea of holding firm, right, to the faith we profess, knowing Jesus as our high priest can be an incredible anchor when those struggles are sure to come. So in order to start our study on this this morning, I'm actually going to reverse the way we would normally do this. Uh, I'm going to come back to chapter 4 and start in chapter 5. And the reason for that is chapter 5 kind of describes what a high priest is. And since that's kind of foreign to us, I figure we better first see what a high priest is, and then we'll come back to the application in chapter 4. Does that sound like an okay plan? So the first four verses of chapter 5 basically list what the job qualifications are if somebody wants to be a high priest. In fact, you could even write in your Bibles, if you did, like job description of a high priest, 5, 1 through 4. It got me to thinking of some other job qualifications, you know, we might need. And I, I was looking around, and I found some really interesting job qualifications I wanted to share uh, with you this morning. Here's one I came across. I really like this. It says, Wanted part-time salesperson who won't quit after two months, who works hard and doesn't think she's going to do me a favor by working here, who can take a joke and won't cry every day on the floor. And if that fits you, if you're qualified, inquire within. Inquire within. I love that. Here's another one. (laughs) Only one qualification. Just one qualification. You gotta have a clue. And this is my all-time favorite one. This is a real ad in a paper. Surgeon wanted for a new health clinic opening in the area, no experience needed, must have own tools. I would like to know the name of that health clinic so I never uh, go there. Those are the qualifications for those jobs, but what we're looking at is the qualifications for the job of a high priest. And if you're following on your notes there, there are three qualifications to become a high priest. Let's look at these. Number one. A high priest must represent the people. Number one, the high priest must represent the people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, this is saying a number of things. Most basically, it's saying that a high priest must be selected from among the people. That's just a fancy way of saying... They should be human beings. In other words, they're not going to drop down out of heaven. They can't be angels. They must come from the mainstream of humanity. If an individual is to represent us, right, they must come from us. That's just the big idea here. Think about it in these terms. Uh, now that I'm a U.S. citizen, I can, I can uh, vote for a state representative, and when I think about who I want to vote for for a state representative, I want to vote for someone who knows what it's like to live in my shoes, right? To come from Illinois, to know what the challenges are, to know what the problems are, so that he or she can then go represent me before you know, the national government. And in the same way, They want a high priest. The high priest job qualification is that they could represent the people. And what does it say in verse 1 specifically that means? It means they are to offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. Now, this is where Leviticus pays off, because this is directly talking about Leviticus 16, which describes the Day of Atonement, or we know it today as Yom Kippur, which is the day when the high priest representing all of the people would enter into the holiest of holy places inside of the temple and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to symbolically seek forgiveness for the sins of the people. He represented the people and the forgiveness of sins. That was the first part of the high priest job description, right? To represent the people specifically when it came to seeking God's forgiveness for the sins of the people. And so sacrifices were made. That was their primary job description. Now the second qualification of a high priest is that they must be able to deal gently with others. Deal gently with others. Look at verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That word deal gently in Greek is such a wonderful word. It means... The ability to put up with people without getting irritated. Have you got that down? You know, when you're driving behind that person going 30 in the 45 mile an hour zone, you're dealing gently with them, right? It, it really means here this attitude which doesn't get angry at the fault of others. It doesn't mean they don't challenge others. They're always challenging them to direct them towards the right path, but they're patient with them. They don't get angry. They don't get irritated and you would go well how on earth could a high priest have that kind of attitude and we saw the reason for that in verse two right it's because they're very well aware of their own weaknesses they're very well aware of their own weakness a high priest knows what it's like to be human don't put a high priest up on a pedestal they know exactly what it's like to be human right they become sick They get tired, they eat too much sometimes, they can struggle with depression and anger, they let other people's emotions control them, they can be people pleasers in a nutshell. They can deal gently because they're human in all their weaknesses. But the biggest reminder of their weakness comes in verse 3. Look at that. that says. It says, this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Again, this takes us back to Leviticus chapter 16 in the day of atonement. You see, I didn't tell you the whole story. Not only does the high priest go into the temple to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people representing them, but you know what he had to do before he ever entered foot there? He had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. I mean, you want to talk about a reminder of your weakness, it's only after taking care of his sin. That he could even then dare enter into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And you better believe when he did that, he didn't enter with some arrogant attitude like, I'm better than everyone else. This is, this is what, of course I'm the one God chose to do this. No, 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 no. He went in with trepidation. And fear. He only stayed long enough to sprinkle the blood on the the altar. In fact, did you know that they actually sewed bells on the robe of the high priest so that the people could hear if he was still alive when he entered in there? A constant reminder of his weakness. That's why they can deal gently with people. That's a second qualification. The third qualification is that a high priest must be called by God. Must be called by God. Look at verse 4. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In other words, you can't grow up as a little boy and say, one day, I'm going to become a high priest. Sorry, that's just not how it worked. God called you. The writer is referring here to Exodus 28, verse 1. Look up at the screen here. Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites... Along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Elaziar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. God called out the family line of Aaron to serve him as high priest. And uh, this wasn't an, a divine appointment. In fact, if you've read the Old Testament, you know anytime somebody tried to usurp the position of high priest, it was always met with disaster, right? Or priest, period. You read about in number 16 about Korah and his followers who didn't think it was fair that Aaron were the ones called, and so they burned incense as, as unauthorized, and they were swallowed up by the earth. You read in 1 Samuel 16, you remember King Saul? Impatiently could not wait for Samuel, and so he did what only the priest was supposed to do. He offered a sacrifice on behalf of the people, and he lost his kingship as a result. Uzziah is another example i think that's in second chronicles 26 where he arrogantly he's the king after all he enters into the temple and he burns incense and he is struck with leprosy for the rest of his life friends you must be called by god to be a high priest it is not something you take upon yourself and so those are the three qualifications to be a high priest and the next question is how does jesus fit the job description How does Jesus fit the job description? We're going to, let's see here. The author goes a little bit out of order. He takes the third qualification first. Was Jesus called as a high priest? What do you think? Let's read verses 5 and 6. It says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. What a great verse that is. It shows one of the things I love most about Jesus, his humility, right? His absolute humility. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus did not decide to grasp this position of high priest. If you're following on your notes, Jesus was called by the Father as our high priest. He was called by the Father as our high priest. Let me just make a few comments on these verses, since this is the first time that this mysterious figure called Melchizedek is mentioned. Jeff is going to talk a lot more about Melchizedek next week. He's going to answer all the questions you've ever had about Melchizedek. But for us today in this context, what's important for us to realize here is that according to Genesis 14, which is where Melchizedek comes up, comes up in the Bible, he is known as both the king of Salem and the priest of the most high God and so the author of Hebrews is saying he's comparing Jesus to Melchizedek and saying he is both king and priest unlike just the regular priests who were only priests Jesus is like Melchizedek who was both the king and the priest and he is both of those things catch the check this out for all eternity for all eternity even now he reigns as priest and king and you know these claims of eternity are really what got Jesus in so much trouble with his opponents right In John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. You know the divine name for God was, I am. Yahweh, what's Jesus claiming there? I sit upon the throne as the king of the world forever and ever. They knew exactly what he was saying. And they wanted to kill him for it. He claims, just like Melchizedek was both king and priest, Jesus too sits as our king and our priest, but he does that for all eternity. This is so important for us to grasp, because understand what the author is saying here, friends. He is saying the Old Testament priests had their day, but that day has passed away. The Old Testament sacrifices had their day, but that day has passed away. Christ is now the priest and king who reigns forever. He is the supreme high priest. And the question to these Hebrew Christians is, why would you ever want to go back to an inferior system? In Jesus, you not only have the King Eternal, but you have this priest who passed through the Holy of Holies once and for all, for all time, to give you direct access into God's presence. Not just once a year, but any day. I still today believe this is such a huge issue that so many Christians miss. This is really the heart of this message for me this morning. Listen, there's so many times that we look for someone else, right, to represent us before God as if I'm not worthy to approach God. I need a mediator of some sort, or I need to offer some sort of sacrifice in order to come into God's presence. But understand, if that's what you think, you've never understood what it means that Jesus is your high priest. In fact, if you're following, here's what it means. Here's what it means. This is the key point of this whole message. In him, in Jesus, we have the same access to God as anybody else. That's what it means for Jesus to be your high priest. What does that mean practically? It means there are no levels of Christians. I may be called as a pastor, but please hear what I'm going to say right now. I do not have any more special access to God than any of you do in this room right now. Nor do you need to go through me in order to have access to God. What it means that Jesus is our high priest is that you can now have direct access into his presence. Not once a year through someone else, but anytime, any day. He is our priest forever. Forever and ever. How about an amen for that? Isn't that good news? Not only was Jesus called by God, number two, Jesus perfectly represents his people. He fulfills the second job description there. Look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now you read that verse, where does that take you to in Jesus' story? Anybody dare? Well, it takes me to the Garden of Gethsemane. It takes me to the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus, uh, you know, is about to be crucified He's praying in utter anguish. He cries out these words from Luke 22. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will. Yours be done. Christ asks that the cup be taken away from him. You know why? Because he was human. He was was human. He was a human being. He didn't want to face what he had to face just as none of us would want to face that and yet as the perfect human he desired his father's will even more than his. Friends, do we have a high priest who knows what it's like to be human with all of its pains and trials and sufferings and temptations? You better believe we do. In Jesus, we have one who has gone before us in all ways, in all things, and he can represent us like no one else could. What a God we have. I mean, look at verses 8 through 10. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, at first glance, those verses can be a little bit confusing, but understand that doesn't mean that at one point Jesus was disobedient and then became obedient, nor does it mean that Jesus was imperfect and then became perfect. The idea behind this is because of Jesus' obedience in suffering, he became complete. That's the idea of that word perfect. He had the complete human experience, right? He knew what it was like to be a human completely. He took that upon himself. You see, only by coming and sharing in the human condition, only by coming and sharing in the human condition could the Son of God fully represent us and fully understand us in our weakness. And yet, that's exactly what he did. You do know that is what makes Christianity unique, yes? God became flesh and suffered with us and for us. I go back to that illustration of the state representative, right? What do we want in a state representative? We want someone who knows what it's like to be us, and our God knows exactly what it's like to be us. He knows exactly what it's like to be us, and so he can represent us perfectly. He had to learn what this whole business about being human is. He had to learn, you know, about the mess We've gotten ourselves into and the rescue that we needed. And Jesus, did he just pass the test? I mean, he passed the test with flying colors. You see, just as we experience trials and temptation and suffering and death, our God, our great high priest, did the exact same thing. And not only did he represent us, but by doing that, he then, it says here, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. That's the good news of the gospel, right? We call that the gospel. By representing us, he now has become the source of salvation for all who obey. Notice their obedience, it's not just necessary for him, it's also expected of us if he really is going to represent us. I used to think, you know, Jesus' obedience, you know, is all about honoring the Father, but here's what it was also about. It was about showing us the way showing us the way i mean what a representative we have huh he went first he showed us what it's like to live as human beings and he paved the way for us to have access to god now for all eternity now i got some good news and some bad news in terms of this which one you want first how about the good news first okay here's the good news just like jesus did we today can still choose to obey that's where the whole Christian life comes down to, right? Faith and obedience. Trust and obedience. In fact, it's because Jesus obeyed, even in great trial and suffering, that he can now help us obey. That was his promise to us. It's not something I do with my own willpower. He says, I'm going to send another just like me, an advocate. And we know that as the Holy Spirit. And the mystery is that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling on in us when we have Christ in us. And the Spirit helps us to obey that's some good news isn't it i'm not left on my own anymore the high priest has given me the gift of the holy spirit so i can obey him now do you want the bad news here's the bad news you know where we most often learn obedience same place jesus did in suffering and trials and temptations and yet can i say there's even good news in that Because in Jesus, we have a high priest who suffered for us so that now, in our suffering, it can produce perseverance. And our perseverance can produce hope. And our hope is what? That we will be with him for eternity as king and priest, and he will represent us forever. So there's really no bad news here. There's really no bad news. It's good news. It's good news. And it's made possible from our high priest. That leads to the third qualification, which is Jesus can deal gently with us because he can sympathize. Can Jesus deal gently with us? Yes, because he can sympathize. Let's read chapter 4, verse 15 out loud on our notes together. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'm going to give you a second just to reread that. Go ahead. We take those words so for granted today. We do not understand how revolutionary of an idea that would have been to these readers first hearing this. You see, for the Jews, their concept of God was that God was holy. What does holy mean? He's completely set apart. God can't understand completely what it means to be human because he's God. He's holy. On top of that, this letter was written within a a Greek context, and so the, the different philosophies that were being taught during this time, the main two were what the Stoics taught, number one. The Stoics believed that God or the gods were apatheia. That's the Greek word. What does that sound like in English? Apathetic. And that's exactly what they meant. Gods or the God didn't have any ability to feel anything. And the reason is, check this argument out, if a God could feel, he could be controlled by others and therefore would be less than God, and so God had to be completely beyond all feeling. There can be no such thing as a God who feels sympathy. The Epicureans, the other philosophers at this time, believe that the gods lived in complete detachment from the world. In other words, they're not even aware of what's going on in our lives. Don't we still hear these things today? God is apathetic to the pain and sufferings of this world. God sits aloof up in heaven, kind of the world just kind of spins around on its axis, and we don't even know, he doesn't even know what's going on in our lives. But in the Bible, do you know what we read? Do you know what we read? Read that verse again. We have a God who is sympathetic. He is sympathetic. He has such sympathy, in fact, that he entered into the suffering of this world. That is absolutely staggering. It is absolutely staggering. It's impossible for us to sit here this morning and appreciate how revolutionary the idea of a sympathetic God is. A God who can experience sympathy. And again, the reason he can, the reason he can is because he became human. He became human. And he was tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. Without sin. Now, I've heard some people say, well, of course Jesus could be tempted without sin. He was God. It was a lot easier for him than it is for me. And I'm going to argue the complete reverse for you. I think it was much harder. For Jesus, You know why? Because I know myself. And I know long before Satan ever fl- 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 throws the whole of his temptations my way, I fall. I fail. But you better believe when Jesus was being tempted, Satan was given everything he had. He unleashed the full arsenal and yet he still stood firm. He still stood firm. He passed the test, and that is why Jesus, as our high priest today, has unequaled sympathy for us. He doesn't just know about your struggles right now. He's not in God, he's not in heaven, just sort of like, ah, that really stinks, you're going through that. No, no, no. He feels it. He has sympathy for us. He can deal gently with us because he entered into our situation and experienced it. The word sympathize, if you're following, means to fully share the experience of another. That's exactly what Jesus did. He is shared in our experience as human beings. Kent Hughes tells a wonderful illustration about this I wanted to share with you. Uh, Some of you musicians are familiar with the idea of sympathetic resonance. Have any of you ever heard of this? What that means is, let's say I were to bring a second piano up on the stage here, and I were to, on that piano, hit the note of G. Out of the second piano, that note would be resonating. In fact, I wouldn't have to touch the piano. You would actually hear the note of G being played from both pianos. Isn't that interesting? Sympathetic resonance, that's what it's called. Now, Jesus' instrument wasn't a piano, it was a human body. It was a human body, and check this out. He took that body to heaven with him. It's his priestly body, and now when a cord is struck in our body, in weakness, in suffering, in trial, and temptation, it resonates with him. Sympathetic resonance. Friends, you know what that means. It means whatever you're going through right now, you know you can go to Christ as your high priest, and he will deal gently with you no sin is too great to keep god from hearing you no background is too messed up for this high priest not to represent you no temptation is too severe that god will not strengthen you and no trial is too difficult that he will not come alongside you and comfort you we have a great high priest who loves us so much He became one of us. He became one of us. In fact, that really leads to the application of this section. Can we read verse 16 out loud on our notes together? It says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What an amazing promise. We have a high priest who is not only called by God, He not only represents us to God, and he not only can deal gently with us because he sympathized with us, but listen, he has now opened up a way for us to approach God confidently in our time of need. And there he will give us grace and mercy in abundance, in abundance. What a great high priest we have. If you're following there, the word confidence here means bold frankness. An open outpouring of the heart. And there's no question this is a talking about approaching God directly in prayer. It's talking about prayer. Now, confidence doesn't mean this arrogance. Like, God, you, I demand that you listen to me. No, there's still an attitude of humility there. It's just we can come to him now without tentativeness, without fear. Think about the contrast. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about Leviticus Where once a year, a high priest, in complete fear and trembling, would enter into the presence of God. And the promise now to us as Christians is you can do that any day. Anytime. You can confidently approach God's throne and know that he will meet you there. Friends, that is the grand revelation of this letter to Hebrews. You can come to the throne of God. And you can be confident that he is there waiting for you, ready, because he's your great high priest. Now, that doesn't mean God is going to solve every problem right away. doesn't mean there aren't going to be natural consequences for the sins we've committed. It does mean, however, that you can go to him in confidence and know he will be there, know he will listen, know he will deal gently with you, know he will answer you in his perfect way and as his perfect timings. Friends, I can tell you from personal experience, I mean, remember what the question we're asking, how do I hold firm to the faith I profess? I can tell you from personal experience, the times I'm not holding firm is are the times when I'm not approaching God confidently in prayer, seeking Him for His help in my times of need, looking for His grace and mercy, looking to the only one, to the only one who can help me overcome as we sang this morning. I find myself drifting. How about you? so easy to go back into shallow faith, but one of the answers is confidently approach the throne of God every day because Jesus is there as our great high priest. That means you don't have to do life without him. He's already come and done life with you. He became human, and we can go to him in our greatest need. He is our great high priest, and I just got to ask you, do you know him? Personally? Do you not just know about him, but do you know him? Because he wants to know you. He wants to know you in this way. In fact, if you're following, here's my question for us this morning as we close. If Jesus is the supreme high priest, which we have just learned he is, will I confidently seek him today? Will I confidently seek him? Now please know, I'm talking to everyone in this room right now. That might be for the first time in your life today. You've never understood that God wants to have direct access with you. That you can come to Him confidently. He wants to represent you. You can put your faith and trust and know that He will do that very thing. But it might be, like me, the thousandth or millionth time. When I'm once again in the battle... I'm in the struggle. I'm in the temptation. I'm in the times of suffering. And I can confidently remember. I can go to my great high priest and know he is waiting for me with open arms. What a God we have. How glad I am for Jesus Christ who is supreme. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord. I pray that you would imprint these amazing truths into our heart this morning. You are our great high priest. And what that means, more than anything, is that we can now have direct access to you. No more fear, no more more trepidation. But because you entered into the most holy of holy places, and you came out victorious, we can know you, and you can know us fully and completely. And I pray if there's anyone here in this room that feels that they're not good enough, that their sin is keeping them from you, God, that you would dispel that lie right now and you would welcome them into your arms. God, as they put their faith and trust in you, as they proclaim to you, I want you to be my high priest to represent me. I pray you would speak words of hope there. And Lord, for those of us who have done that but needed to be reminded today, needed to be reminded that we can approach you confidently, even in our times of greatest need. We say thank you. We say thank you, Jesus, that you are the high priest who reigns forever. Amen.